A wonderful fish or beast was lately killed by James Stewart as it came of its own accord to him out of the sea to the shore where he was alone on horseback at the harbor of Dingle. It had two heads and ten horns and upon eight of the said horns about 800 buttons which resembled little coronets and each of them was a set of teeth. The body was bigger than a horse and was 19 feet long, horns and all. The great head thereof carried only the said ten horns and two very large eyes, and the little head thereof carried a wonderful strange mouth and two tongues in it, which had natural power to draw itself out of or into the body as its own necessity required. All persons who desire to be further satisfied in the truth hereof may see the little head and two of the horns with the coronets thereon, a draft of the holes that appeared together alive, with a certificate from responsible hands and a great relation of all the passages witnessing the truth thereof at the three castles on the lower end of Cork Hill. Wow. What the heck is that? It's a sea monster of some sort, or maybe a fish or a giant squid of some kind. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. This is our very first episode, and we are so excited. We thought we'd, we'd say a little bit about our the plan and what we do in every episode. Before we get into the sea monsters themselves, every episode we will take a creature of interest in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance. And Alexa will talk about the Middle Ages. I will talk a little bit about the Renaissance, and together we'll also talk about the real as well as the fantastical, because all of the animals that we will look at are both fantastic and real in many ways. Absolutely. Animal lore was so important in the Middle Ages and also in the early modern period, and it was partly because they'd inherited this very rich tradition from antiquity, including a book that will be referring to fairly often here called the Physiologus. So this was a book that was composed in Greek for a Christian audience sometime in the first three centuries after Christ. And it pulls together a ton of Greek, Egyptian, Roman, and Mesopotamian lore about animals, some of which is truly fantastic and some of which is pretty real. It also includes a lot of sort of moralizing and allegorizing. So, you know, comparing certain traits or behaviors of the animals to kind of religious truths. And then another major source for all of our writers and, and artists in this period is Aesop's Fables, which is a much older body of literature reaching back into the probably the, like the 7th century BC. That was super popular in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. In fact, it's one of those books that you really could argue it's an all-time bestseller. It was almost continually in projection in manuscript and then later in print. Um, so those, along with Aristotle, local oral traditions, these are some of the literary sources that we'll be re referencing. Um, and there's also like this burgeoning field of animal studies, scholars from all different disciplines looking at the non-human in the Middle Ages. And I think we really owe a debt to that work for drawing attention to this incredibly rich body of material. And someday we'll be inviting some of those scholars to come talk about their particular interests in animal studies. Yes, real um, fantastic beast yeah. experts. And 
experts. I'm not an expert on animal studies. I'm always intrigued, though, by the way animals show up in the illuminated manuscripts and the small ivory sculptures that I like to work on. You know, they can seem sort of incidental or marginal, but if you start to really interrogate them, they're working really hard to make you think harder. And I think that's one of the things that will continually return to as well is this idea that animals are really productive places for us to think about what it means to be human, what it means in, in many cases to be European, what it means to be Christian or Jewish or, or uh, Muslim in medieval Europe. So, so animals are good then for thinking. All, all of that helps us, helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today, I think as well. Absolutely. Uh, so one of the one of the uh, early modern sources that I will use quite a bit is a book by a guy named Topsell called The History of Four-Footed Beasts, which combines a lot of that older lore with a newly kind of proto-natural history approach to the world, which is always fun when you're getting the natural history of an animal that we know is entirely imaginary. Or do we know that? <laughs> we will we will find out more <laughs> all right so getting back uh, to this crazy description of a sea monster or a giant squid or whatever that was tell me a little bit about that is that from topsail that is not that's actually a, a document from the national library of ireland from 1673 and it's it's basically just a collection of some manuscript uh, sources on this event. This creature turns up in Dingle and is killed and then put on display. And, you know, I said squid because one of the things that we like to do often when we see early accounts of sea monsters is figure out what was it, quote unquote, really that they were finding. But if you notice, to make it into a giant squid, you have to ignore actually quite a few elements of the of the account itself, namely the fact that it came up on the beach and attacked this guy as he was riding along <laughs> one day, uh, which is not really the behavior of, of a giant squid ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're deep sea creatures, so they're not hanging out on the shoreline. Yeah. And as far as we know, they don't come out of the water intentionally yeah. at any time. Exactly. Washed up on the beach, maybe dramatic attack on men on horseback, not. But that's typical of what we find is that there's elements of many accounts that make us think that maybe there's some real modern understanding of what was going on. But then there's so many elements of these accounts that are also fantastical and uh, inexplicable that if we simply try to concentrate on displacing the, the mystery and the marvelousness of these right. uh, legendary creatures, I think we do history a disservice. We do the human imagination a disservice. And maybe also the fantastic creatures. I mean, of course, they have their the poor sea monster. Yeah, they have their purpose. They have their work to do, right? I mean, I think at least for the Middle Ages, um, there's also this perception of the sea or this understanding of the sea that is really interesting. It's the sea is a way to get from one place to another, first and foremost, right? So we have these maritime cultures and they build ships and they travel on the sea. And in fact, in the literature of 
medieval Scandinavia and Viking literature, these pathways across the sea are called whale roads. So the idea is that, you know, the whales are these creatures who traverse the sea and who have these sort of distinct pathways, just as on land, there are roads, there are roads on the sea too. I find it really interesting. They're associated with whales specifically, these large creatures, but what goes on beneath the surface is really a mystery to people in the middle ages. I mean, the sea is fairly mysterious even now. We understand so little about what is happening in the sea compared to what we understand about what's going on the land, going on on the land, or even what is happening, say, on the surface of the moon. It's super mysterious, and it's a great place to begin talking about real fantastic beasts because the sea is literally stuffed with creatures that defy our imagination. And for a long time, the sea was, in large amount, it was bottomless because they did not have ways of sounding beyond a certain distance. There's a a famous uh, moment in As You Like It, Shakespeare's As You Like It, where a character says that her love has has no bottom, like the Bay of Portugal. (laughs) But for these these seafarers out there, they, and until they are in soundings, that is, they can drop their line over yeah. the side and, and like know where the bottom is, they are in essentially a bottomless abyss. There is no understanding of where the sea might stop. It might go all the way down, which means it could contain almost anything. And I think it's important that you say all the way down, because what's at the very bottom of the sort of order of things is hell, right? And so sea creatures are often imbued with a kind of devilish or satanic energy. There's this great old English poem called The Whale. And in the poem, the poet tells us a little bit about whales. Sort of, at first you think, oh, he's just, you know, telling us about whale behavior. But of course, that's not really what's going on. He actually borrows a story from the physiologus. I think he tells it really well, so I'm just going to read this nice translation that I have here. He says, His aspect is like a leprous stone, like those that crumble over by the water, surrounded by sandy hills, a most mighty reef, so that the wave sailors believed that they might be looking with their eyes upon some island, and then tether their high-proud ship to that non-land by their anchor ropes, settling their sea steeds, their swimming at an end, And then the brave-hearted go up onto that island, their keels standing fixed by the shore, wound about by the tide. Then the weary-spirited sailors make camp, looking for no wickedness on that island, awakening a fire, kindling large flames. The mourning heroes become joyful, longing for rest. When, crafty in crime, he, that's the whale, perceives those who have come upon him, abiding fast, keeping their camp, wishing for good weather, Then forthwith he turns downward into the salty waves with them as plunder, this ghast of the spear waves, seeking the bottom, and then affixing that ship with its crew drowned in that death hall. So, in inimitable Old English poetical style, this poet is telling us the whale, who has this kind of craggy uh, appearance, and if you've ever seen a right whale or any of the bow whales, the... um, they grow sort of barnacles and stuff on their head. So that's what I imagine he's sort of describing. This whale looks like an island. The sailors tie up to him. 
And as soon as they were kind of comfortable and lulled into to a lack of attention, he he sounds, he dives deep and, and kills them all. And this, of course, is is a story that we find in the Physiologus, but it it's repeated here, I think, in much more colorful detail. And of course, it's an allegory because the whale is like Satan, who lulls you into sinning and then pulls you down into the depths of hell. And I think that that image was so, or that that idea was so well understood that it, um, it informs that passage in Milton's Paradise Lost, where Satan lying on the burning lake is compared to Leviathan. And then the little story is the exact same story. Leviathan's on the water and uh, people try to moor their boat there. The little, you know, pilot of his skiff attaches the rope there. And, and the, the audience clearly understands the, the allegory and the connection with Satan and why it's just expected that the whale is Satan. Right. And I mean, obviously, they're also picking up on things that you find in the Bible, you know, this sort of biblical concept of Leviathan as a, it's not actually ever really clear whether in the, you know, Hebrew text, whether the animal in question is more like a whale or whether it's more like a serpent or a fire breathing dragon. It seems to be all three of those things at different times, depending on who's talking. Um, the most extended description is from the book of Job and it definitely breathes fire there. But what's super interesting is that that figure for sort of a satanic creature, or a creature of evil also gets picked up on in medieval Jewish thought um, in the Zohar, which is sort of one of the main Kabbalistic texts in the 13th century, it gets picked up on as a kind of figure for enlightenment. The idea being that it is a, a sort of portal, like through its hideousness, it draws you all the way down and then you, and then you have some kind of a revelation or some kind of coming to knowledge of God through this actually consumption of the Leviathan. You actually eat it. As a as opposed to being eaten by it. Right. <laughs> okay. Because I was going to say that the mouth of Leviathan is always a gateway to somewhere. <laughs> it's just so large. In that same poem, the second half of the poem is concerned with the very large mouth of the whale, in fact, and the fact that it gets hungry. And so it opens up its mouth and listen to what it's doing here, because this does actually sound like the observation of, of, baleen whale behavior, right? The whale opens up its mouth and just holds it open. And, and the poet says that the, it exhales this incredibly fragrant perfume and all the fish of the ocean are drawn to it and swim into its mouth. Just as Satan exhales a fragrant perfume to attract sinners. You gotta love the allegory. <laughs> Persistent allegory in, in, the, medie in the medieval tradition. We'll see this again and again. I think it's one of the things to look forward to um, is to see how animals are allegorized. Absolutely. So here's a question for you. Isn't uh, so like in the Bible, isn't the Leviathan sometimes referred to as, as Cetus or Cetus? Yeah. So Cetus is this Greek sea monster, I guess you could say. He's a sea monster or it's a sea monster that really plagued the ancient Greeks, according to Greek mythology. And in particular, 
it features in the story of Perseus. So Perseus is this Greek hero and he has to rescue this princess Andromeda whose parents have chained her to a rock and this sea monster Cetus is going to consume her. So he has to free her and um, kill the monster and then marry her. And we get a description of Cetus, but it's, it's kind of vague, you know, in the Greek literature. It's just a monster. You're supposed to know what a monster looks like. Interestingly, though, that name, that Greek name, becomes the root for the Latin word for whale. So clearly somebody at some point was thinking that it was a whale, that Cetus was a whale. So we call the, the Latin or the Linnaean nomenclature, um, the scientific nomenclature for whales as a group is cetaceans. So their, their monstrousness is built into them. Absolutely. From the beginning. Absolutely. They, they feature whales in particular and dolphins and porpoises feature in medieval accounts pretty prominently because they are so large, but they're also pretty rare. Like there's a lot of debate about whether medieval people engaged in active whale hunting uh, in Europe or whether they instead just sort of waited for these creatures to wash up on the shore. There's a really famous story about a saint named Philibert. You gotta love that. He was the founder of an abbey called Noir Moutier, which was on the coast of France by the mouth of the Loire River. And it was bad times at Noir Moutier. The monks didn't have enough food. You know, the local peasants were starving. Everybody was hungry. And St. Philibert did what any good saint would do. He got down on his knees and he prayed for God's assistance. And lo and behold, the very next morning, 237 whales, well, they're actually porpoises or dolphins, I think, in the account, uh, washed up on the shore of the beach by the mouth of the Loire River. So it's very specific, 237. I think in this case, you know, they're primarily being understood as food. And it, it's interesting too, because if you look at sort of a series of monastic rules that were written in Ireland around the same time, one of the rules is you can't eat any carrion. You can't eat food, you know, animals that have died, not through slaughter, except for whales and, and dolphins that wash up on the beach. You can eat those as long as they don't smell too bad. <laughs> is this why most of the early pictures we have of people cutting whales up are clearly whales that have been beached rather than anything associated with, with fishing activity. I would imagine that's the case. I mean, whaling for large pelagic whales is incredibly dangerous, as anyone who's read Moby Dick can tell you. And it requires a kind of level of skill and equipment and a size of ship that isn't really, you know, available to medieval Europeans. Now, there are, of course, indigenous people in the Arctic who hunt whales from tiny kayaks and uh, canoes, but they have a different set of cultural skills than these medieval Europeans who just aren't that technologically advanced to do that. Yeah, although they're doing a lot of fishing, which we can talk about. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because it, it's not for lack of opportunity that they don't become whale hunters. That's why there's some, I think, debate about whether there was whaling or not 
And part of the problem arises well, from the fact is that the category of whale is not a very clearly understood category. It's all mixed up with the sea monsters, you know, and who goes monster right. hunting except heroes? Heroes go monster hunting. Oh, and well, and fish itself. There isn't a separation between, you know, the mammals out there and the fish out there in their minds. They're just all fish of different sizes. If fish. Right. And, you know, the thing that James Stewart killed is a wonderful fish, right? Yes. <laughs> Which gets if, us back. If it's in the water. Sorry. It's a fish. If it's in the water, it's a fish. Yes. Which gets us back to kind of that thing about the surface of the sea being kind of this veil that's drawn over a great deal of mystery. You know, in, in the early modern period, there are, there are, there are a lot more kind of representations of what we would call sea monsters. And I think our traditional kind of image of what you think a sea monster or a sea serpent is probably comes from illustrations on maps from the early modern period, which are in part a kind of an exercise for the engravers and an advertisement for the map itself, rather than an attempt to represent what's actually going on. People expected a certain kind of map, the kind that you would pay a lot of money for to be very beautiful. To, it's an art object. And there's a lot of open space out there when you're in a map and you want to fill it with things. And one thing to fill the water with is ships being attacked by sea monsters. So they're, they're, they're there and they're represented sometimes as giant octopi or, or whales um, or serpents. Uh -huh. um, anyway, but part of it's, you know, part of it's sort of marketing. And I, I think uh, it also becomes a, accounts of sea monsters become a subgenre of travel literature. Were they just so they're, making they're, stuff they're, up? I mean, <laughs> of course. Well, all right. So like, let, I'll give you an example. I got, I'll, I'll read a little piece here. This is this is from uh, Sir Humphrey Davies trip to Newfoundland. Davy set up the first English colony in North America. That was during uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign. And in this expedition, Davies himself drowned on the way home. But here's this account told by a guy named Edward Hayes, who was the captain of one of the smaller ships. So here's what they encountered. He says, There passed along between us and towards the land, which we now forsook, a very lion to our seeming, in shape, hair, and color not swimming after the manner of a beast by moving his feet, but rather sliding upon the water with his whole body, excepting the legs in sight, neither yet diving under and again raising above the water as is the manner of whales, dolphins, tunies, porpoises, and all other fish, but confidently showing himself above water without hiding. Notwithstanding, we presented ourselves in open view and gesture to amaze him. I guess they're all jumping up and down. As all creatures will be commonly at a sudden gaze in sight of men. Thus he passed along, turning his head to and fro, yawning and gaping wide with ugly demonstration of long teeth and glaring eyes, and to bid us a farewell, coming right against the hind, that's the name of his ship, he sent forth a horrible voice, roaring or bellowing as doth a lion, which spectacle we all beheld so far as we were able to discern the same, as men prone to wonder at every strange thing, as this doubtless was to see a lion on the open sea, or a fish in the shape of a lion. What opinion others had thereof, and chiefly the general himself, I forbear to deliver, but he took it for a good omen, rejoicing that he was to war against such an enemy if it were the devil. Uh, so, and then he drowned. He, <laughs> yes, yeah, he didn't do so well about it. If that's what he's warring against, he didn't do so well. But there's, 
it's this weird kind of combination. There's a little bit of natural history there, right? They're carefully observing this creature. They're comparing it with known species. They're trying to sort of provoke a response, right? Like, right. just let's see, you know, like, does it recognize us? There's all that. But then there's also, like, spectacle, curiosity, wonder, and this sort of anthropomorphism. Right. Right? The creature wants to bid them farewell and so moving on. And accounts like this helped make voyages like this popular and they're therefore fundable <laughs> uh move you know uh, in in the future so when you see accounts like this they're an odd kind of combination of like that n- new kind of sense of like natural history and the curious creatures that might actually be out there in the real world to be found right. and then more of the kind of uh, fantastic sea monster lore including you know comparing it to the devil right in the in, at the end of your realistic account right and i mean one does wonder did they see something and if they saw something what was it of course not to try to assign it a you know modern scientific classification but clearly they saw something wondrous and they needed to find some language and some descriptive terms in which to contain this experience they couldn't really otherwise qualify so sea lion it's a sea lion right there's sea lions except that they're not in the atlantic ocean right and that doesn't sound like (laughs) a a sea lion i mean so there are these like living sea monsters right and and there's a sort of market value to these accounts of them you know how how do you see that being processed in the sort of mentality of the time i mean does shakespeare talk about about this Shakespeare, our index of all things early modern in England. So living sea monsters are the basis for these sensational accounts that that you could sell, right? Or that could help you sell your narrative. Dead sea monsters turning up on the beach are curiosities to be marketed to, sometimes for a price. And even that account of the creature in Ireland ends with this, you know, like if you want to go see it, you can go here and there's pieces of it. And there's like, you know, like documents that will attest its reality. It was clearly a an event then it becomes a, from a sea monster into a, like a, a something for ticketing and shakespeare has a great scene in the tempest uh, there's this char- character caliban who is the uh, native inhabitant of this island and uh, europeans come across caliban while he's sleeping and they mistake him for what they call a strange fish they it's unclear exactly what caliban looks like caliban his costumes have been different in many productions but they call him a strange fish. And the first thing they think is, wow, let's bring him back to to Europe and we can make a fortune by charging admission. Oh, so, that's kind of tragic. Yeah, so, you know, the uh, mighty Leviathan, the image of the devil fall into the status of circus freak. Of circus freak. But that's, I mean, that's that sums up, uh, you know, the, the sort of the evolution of the marvelous in lots of ways throughout the early modern period. Uh, that it repeats some of the early, you know, early stuff, but then can end up in just sensationalism and spectacle. Yeah. But so here's the thing that that lionfish, right? You think, uh, well, sea lion can't be a sea lion. You, then you think fur seal. Fur seals are a lot like sea lions. They they make noises like lions. They seem lionish. Except that Humphrey Davies and all the people on that trip were perfectly well acquainted with fur seals right right and and all these other creatures i mean they're able to run down and say it's like 
whales, dolphins, tunies, porpoises. Right. He's like, nope, 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 can't be this, can't right. be that. They're not ignorant. They're not seeing everything as a monster and a marvel. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, because they, they, they clearly have a lot of knowledge about the sea. They're spending a lot of time out there. Uh, Northern European cultures were often many of them seafaring cultures going back into the uh, into you know the early Middle Ages for sure. Yes, and so maybe they're absolutely not whaling, I mean, but they know a lot. Exactly, and yes, the surface of the sea represents this veil over the unknown. But of course, uh, for economic reasons and for reasons simply of use, many people knew quite a lot about what lived in the sea. I could say that perhaps fish are really responsible for the European Union, the American Revolution, and the stock market. All those things happened because of medieval and early modern wait, fish. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> how, <laughs> like, how did that, how does that work? Well. <laughs> the European Union? <laughs> okay. So historians, you know, archaeologists have done a ton of work. These people in uh environmental um, history have done a lot of work on fishing because fishing and sort of uh, aquaculture and the sort of collapsing fish stocks are so currently important. So these historians of fishing think that around 1000 CE, um, sort of at the end of what we used to call the Dark Ages, people were living in towns and the towns began to grow in Europe and they just began to eat a lot more fish. And there were a couple of reasons for this. One um, was that in the Christian calendar, there were days when you couldn't eat meat, uh, but fish doesn't count as meat. So you can eat fish on a fast day. They even called them fish days. And so getting enough fish became a real priority and instead of only catching fish you caught yourself or locally, there were these whole industries that developed, especially in the North Atlantic, of catching particularly codfish, and which were also known as stock fish, and uh, catching them, drying them, salting them, preserving them. If you've ever had bacalao, that's, uh, that's a you know dish made from salted, dried codfish. And all of this long-distance fishing, because the cod are pelagic fish that live out in the ocean, um, promoted all of this exploration across the Atlantic, uh, long distance trade. So you could say the sort of global economy begins with a fishing trade. And also, you know, you, New England is basically founded as a fishing colony, right? Oh. Yeah. If you go to like the Massachusetts State House, in the legislative chambers, there's a carving of a cod. And I'm not making this up. It's called the Sacred Cod of Massachusetts. So that's how central <laughs> cod is. Um, and then, of course, these North American colonists, European colonists in North America began trading their dried fish for other goods, again, across these whale roads, I guess you could say, and um, particularly trading the dried fish to the Caribbean in exchange for slaves and rum. And England stepped in and said to the American colonists, you have to pay higher taxes on this because you're making too much money off it. And all of this taxation without representation led to. Oh, I thought it was about tea or stamps or no. I don't know. I never I, <laughs> I never thought about it as cod. It's cod. It's all about cod. 
In fact, there was an 18th century prime minister of Britain who called uh, cod the British gold. So I guess what I'm saying is that like fishing is one of the sort of pathways that countries begin to use to conceive of their economic interests on this kind of national level and in terms of competition with other nations. And that essentially is the underlying thinking and and sort of ideological construct for the European Union. So early trade, early trade, I mean, like uh, international trade collaboration was often about fishing and fish, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. The founding members of the EU are the same list of countries as those with a vested interest in the cod fisheries. Exactly the same list. So I do know that there there is interesting kind of archaeological evidence that people would often prefer uh, cod, stockfish, salted cod, over uh, locally available freshwater fish like trout, which to our it sort of blows my mind to think that you know like your your goat you'd, that you'd rather choose salt cod than you know rainbow trout, but I think that probably there's a lot of you know there's a kind of a status uh, associated with the ability to serve some of these these fish up because of their economic importance. Exactly. It's not unlike salmon today. I mean, salmon is a prestige fish, right, on global tables in in the 21st century. And part of the prestige comes from the sort of difficulty of catching salmon and bringing fresh salmon to the table. I know. It's too bad if you don't really like salmon, like I don't. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm a Seattle girl, so I have my feelings about salmon. (laughs) (laughs) But I like bacalao, too, so. I prefer bluefish and, and mackerel. Oh, the... the New England fishes. <laughs> yep, yep. What was it we always it's had in college? all how you were brought up. Yeah, right. uh, baked scrod. That, I'm, I'm actually surprised it's not the sacred scrod of Massachusetts, because when I, lived, when I lived in Massachusetts, it was all about the scrod. Anyway, so where does this put us with sea monsters? It's like they're two things at once, or, you know, like it's, the, the ocean is this pa- place of intense economic activity and knowledge and, you know, they're, they're processing these fish. But on the other hand, they're reporting monsters from the sea right through the early modern period. It's like they have a double vision. Uh, they're, they're seeing the world both in terms of the marvelous and the fantastical and as a place of kind of economic exploitation and, and, uh, nascent natural history all at the same time. Right. I mean, it's really hard to avoid Melville in this context, because in some ways, Moby Dick brings all of this together. The sort of the notion of the whale or the the massive sea creature as a kind of monster, as a kind of embodiment of evil, but also really as a metaphor and allegory for all that we hold inside us that is dark and, and sinister. But also, Moby Dick is a novel about whaling. And there's some of my favorite passages in that book are the descriptions of what they do, like what the processes are like and how they recruit the whalers. I mean, they're really long. And when I read them for a required course in college, I was like, oh, come on, let's get through this. But now those are some of my favorite <laughs> passages because they really do sort of represent the interweaving of this very 
workaday reality of maritime communities, you know, what we do on the sea and around the sea and what our relationship is to the animal population of the sea and how human communities and those those non-human communities interact on the one hand and then on the other hand all of this kind of psychological and religious and cosmological stuff that's going on there the sea is a bottomless so well <laughs> yeah but so for me i mean melville it's uh there's a kind of uh yeah like we profundity which means depth mm -hmm. right uh for melville there's like there is a kind of profundity to this material but it also means that sea monsters could be turned into uh as they do in the middle ages with allegory even in the early modern period they they could be just political opportunities so that creature that we started with one of the letters in that in the collection isn't referring to the creature just as uh, a sea monster but argues that it's clearly a symbol of the evils of the Catholic Church, oh. right? The horns are representing Catholic countries, etc. It's just like goes down the sea monster and all the parts somehow represent Catholicism. And so this is 1673 in Ireland. To see it that way is a deeply kind of political exercise because violent conflict on that point had lasted until really recently in, in Ireland. Right. So, you know, like at, at least one person kind of walks up to a strange creature on the beach and says to themselves like oh look the pope is bad yeah and you know the sea being both a, a space of, of freedom i guess from national boundaries i mean in, in the middle ages there were no national waters there there was no sense that you know 10 miles off the coast or whatever that's that's still within the boundaries of a nation state the sea was pretty much unbounded that way as we understand it. Although did, I believe they, their wars were still fought over fisheries. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. The, yeah, and, and fishing, well, if not fishing rights, at least uh, the, the ability to continue fishing in a particular exactly. area. Exactly, not to say that there wasn't conflict about who got to use what parts of the ocean, but more the sense that, and I mean, the Romans called the entire Mediterranean our sea, right? So you could have a sense of ownership over the ocean, but the boundaries are quite literally fluid. So fluid, yes. Know, yeah. There's that. Anyway, so I, I think that's all we have time for yeah. today. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends. You can also go, we have a website, realfantasticbeasts.com. You can find show notes transcripts, pictures of some of these real creatures, as well as fantastic ones. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today. All right. Until next time, keep your eyes peeled. Bye.